This is the Seattle Astronomy Podcast, conversations about the cosmos with an emphasis on space and astronomy news of interest to amateur astronomy enthusiasts. I'm Greg Scheiderer, your host. I'm also the writer of the Seattle Astronomy blog at seattleastronomy.com. Our guest is Ron Hobbs, a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador. We'll talk about the Ambassador program, the latest from the New Horizons mission, and more broadly, how everyone is a space explorer. Ron, you're a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador and have been almost since the beginning of, of that program. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what, what that's all about and what it entails. It's uh, been my honor to be a part of a uh, volunteer education and public outreach program that NASA's been doing for the last 20 years. Um, uh, education public outreach is very important to NASA. Um, they're spending uh, Americans' money to uh, go out and explore the universe and uh, they want to make sure that they get the information out to everyone who's interested in it. And it seems that there are lots of people interested uh, these days. So NASA actually has a number of different kinds of ambassadors. Uh, They have exploration ambassadors and universe ambassadors. The Solar System Ambassadors program actually started as the Galileo Ambassadors back in 1997. Um, Galileo was the first uh, probe from Earth to orbit the giant planet Jupiter. And um, for those who have uh, followed space uh, over uh, the last few decades, you probably know that it had a broken main antenna and so information was coming back fairly slowly. And so NASA came up with the idea of recruiting enthusiasts, uh, people who were excited about space exploration, to help explain uh, the mission to people. And it it was originally called the Galileo Ambassadors. Um, Well, the other missions at JPL that are being run through JPL, they heard about this and they saw that uh, these enthusiasts were doing a great job representing the uh, information from Galileo and so they said can we get on board too and of course they had to expand the title at that point so I I always think it's a rather ostentatious title um, solar system ambassadors but it is very accurate Uh, our job is to share the excitement of space exploration with the general public uh, particularly the exploration uh, of the worlds of our solar system and I always think if you're an ambassador, maybe you uh, don't have to pay parking tickets either, and that <laughs> sort of stuff. <laughs> well, I have been promised a sash when I worked at the Museum of Flight. Uh, I don't have my sash yet. What's, uh, what's foremost on your mind? Uh, it sounds like there's some interesting stuff ahead for New Horizons. It's past Pluto, but its work isn't done. No, its work is definitely not done. Let me start by saying that we live in a special time. There's just so much coming down the pipeline, down through the deep space network where most, if not all, of the international missions that are out there exploring um, come in. Um, and one of the things that's, uh, that I find very exciting is that there are uh, citizen scientists, or enthusiasts, uh, there are various names that we use uh, to describe people like myself who are excited Uh, about space exploration. 
uh, and there are many who are beginning to participate. And one of the things that I love is that NASA has really um, uh, opened their arms to the citizen scientists um, and allowed them to participate. There are people who are processing images from a number of uh, uh, probes. Um, and some of these people have actually gotten their names uh, published on uh, scientific uh, papers because of the contribution that they're making. Um, and uh, it really is a reminder that we are all explorers and that we, uh, anybody who's interested has curiosity and as far as I can tell, any human being who's alive is curious to some degree or another. Um, as, uh, some of us more than others, I guess. But uh, um, New Horizons is a great example of how uh, uh, this has become a worldwide community of uh, exploration. I'll just remind people that Pluto was discovered. Pluto was the first... We now believe it was the first of the Kuiper Belt objects to be discovered, the first dwarf planet uh, in the what Alan Stern calls the third zone of the solar system. Uh, was uh, was discovered by a Kansas farm boy by the name of Clyde Tombaugh, who, in a sense, was an early enthusiast. Uh, he got a job at the uh, Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona because he had built his own observing equipment out of used farm equipment in his farm in Kansas and had done some drawings of his observations and he sent them off to the Flagstaff Observatory. This was a little bit uh, after um, Percival Lowell had died um, and about the time that the uh, uh, directors of the Lowell Observatory were interested in looking for uh, this planet X or this ninth planet or um, that some people believe, Percival Lowell in particular, believed to be out there. Um, and they were impressed enough with his pictures that they hired him. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the New Horizons mission is that the engineers and the scientists that work for NASA that built this probe um, actually included a sample of his ashes on the probe. And Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of Pluto, will become the first human being to have their remains interred in interstellar space, which I think is a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, I always thought that Clyde Tombaugh had come up with the name for Pluto because, you know, I learned uh, in high school that planets were named by their discoverers. Uh, comets and, and other bodies out there. But it turns out that uh, it was actually a, an 11-year-old from England who suggested the name Pluto. Uh, Venetia Burney um, uh, was uh, being raised by her grandparents and uh, uh, she had just studied in her school the, the, the classics. And her grandfather was reading uh, the morning paper in March of 1930 and said, oh, the Americans have discovered a new planet. I uh, wonder what they're going to call it. And she said, well, I think we should call it Pluto because it's way out there in the dark and, and whatnot. And so uh, it turns out that her grandfather was well-connected and he had a relative who was an astronomer 
and that astronomer and he wrote a letter to the Flagstaff Observatory and um, Venetia Bernie's uh, suggestion was accepted. Um, and one, one of my most favorite pictures is Alan Stern and Venetia Bernie. Uh, she married and her last name became Fair at that point. Um, but Alan Stern and his scientific team named one of the scientific instruments after her. And it turns out that it was the student dust counter is the, is the instrument. It was uh, built and um, managed by students at the University of Colorado. It is the first student-built instrument on a major uh, NASA probe uh, ever. That's very cool. And it was uh, named after Venetia Bernie Fair, who um, was the 11-year-old who suggested the name Pluto for the what was then considered to be the solar system's ninth planet. So, I mean, there are all these other uh, all these other pictures as well. Um, uh, Clyde Tombaugh's children, uh, Alden and Annette were at the launch and they were at the flyby. They were back at the uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory back in Maryland where the uh, flyby was being uh, uh, managed. And um, uh, there's uh, some wonderful pictures of the celebration and you really get a clear idea from those pictures that this is a community exploration, that, that this includes the whole community. Um, and now, of course, New Horizons flew by Pluto on July 14th, uh, 2015. Interestingly, that's 50 years to the day after Mariner 4 flew by Mars and took the first close-up pictures of Mars. Um, back in on July 14th, 1965. And so that date sort of encapsulates uh, the initial reconnaissance uh, of the solar system. Um, and of course, Pluto turned out to be quite uh, an interesting world. Uh, at, when I was at the Museum of Flight, I did, uh, uh, they asked me to do a short presentation on Pluto. And uh, my title was Pluto. Planet, icy dwarf, or interesting world? And basically my conclusion was yes to all three. Indeed. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, it turned out to be even more interesting uh, than, than uh, we could imagine. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we go exploring is because we keep finding that nature is much more creative than, than our imaginations. <laughs> yeah, you know, we all seem to think that, you know, my image anyway was, oh, it's probably just some gray rock out there, and that's how we might think of things like Ceres as well. And yeah. we actually get there, and they're fascinating uh, places all their own. There, there's a quote, uh, I, and I, I forget who said it, but it was one of the team members of the New Horizons. Um, actually, interestingly, uh, Pluto was not the first dwarf planet to be visited by a spacecraft from Earth. No. A few months earlier, the Dawn spacecraft had approached uh, and gone into orbit around Ceres, which you mentioned. Um, Ceres is the largest of the asteroids. 
um, weighs about one-third of all of the mass of uh, the asteroid belt, uh, the main asteroid belt, um, and, um, and has been studying that dwarf planet. Uh, it's the only dwarf planet in the inner solar system, uh, as we consider right now. Um, but this team member from New Horizons said, you know, it's incredible. Uh, Ceres looks like what I thought Pluto would look like, and Pluto looks like what I thought Ceres would look like. <laughs> it's like they switched them on us. <laughs> and so, uh, again, that's the reason we go exploring, is because we find these new and wonderful things. And uh, Maybe uh, at some future date we'll go into some of the details of what New Horizons found at Pluto. Um, but Pluto was not the only destination. Um, let me go back to, to Alan Stern for a moment. Um, Alan Stern uh, had an interest in the outer solar system going back to the 80s. Um, he was a part of what became known as the Pluto Underground at NASA, uh, a group of scientists who were very interested in studying Pluto and any other worlds. At that point, Pluto was the only one we knew out there beyond Neptune. Um, and uh, it's interesting, over the years, uh, he was involved with three or four different projects, two of which got canceled on him um, after they were approved. I, I think it was two. Maybe one of them never got approved. Um, it's a little bit confusing there, but uh, he worked and continued to work. But one of the supports was the National Science Foundation, the National Academies of Science, the voluntary groups of uh, scientists who direct NASA, you know, they, they actually have a decadal survey. Every 10 years they get together and they look at what are the most important things that NASA needs to go and look at and how do they spend the scarce dollars that they have to meet the scientists' expectations of what, what we really need to study. And Pluto and the Kuiper Belt were high on their list for several of these studies. Uh, and it was one of the reasons why New Horizons finally got approved in the early 2000s uh, and then was launched in 2006. Um, so uh, Alan Stern has been, um, been with this for 30 years or more, uh, working on uh, getting out there. But the National Science Foundation made it very clear that Pluto was not the only interest, uh, that they really wanted to visit other objects out there. And, um, but these things are really far out there, and they're really dark, and um, even as we were approaching Pluto, and maybe even afterwards, I forgot to check the dates, 2014 is when it was discovered. But so a year before the Pluto flyby, they still hadn't discovered an object to fly by afterwards. Yeah, they were using Hubble to try to find something, well, right? Well, uh, they were trying, <laughs> they were using all kinds of telescopes, but it became very clear that uh, it, it wouldn't happen for the ground. And finally, they were granted time uh, with Hubble to do a search of the area. Um, it's a difficult search, mind you, because right now Pluto, from Earth, Pluto and this area where New Horizons is going 
is against the star fields of Sagittarius, which is, of course, down towards the center of the, the galaxy. Very busy. And so there's a, there's a lot of little points of light there, <laughs> and you're looking for a very dim point of light that, tends, that moves against those background stars. But in 2014, um, Hubble did come up with five um, uh, potential uh, targets uh, named informally PT1 through 5. Um, <laughs> and then uh, they did some more work. Um, and so one of these, PT1, was chosen. Its designation with the International Astronomical Union is 2014 MU69. Um, it will be given a name. In fact, there's a contest going on right now with NASA. They're going to wait until, I think, until we actually see it before they select a name. But if anybody out there would like to participate in exploration and has an idea of what we should call this, uh, you know, go on the NASA website. I'm sure they would love to hear your, uh, your suggestions. But one of the ways that we study these small dim objects, we've studied Pluto and some of the other dwarf planets that we've discovered out there, by watching them occult stars. Um, by watching a star as Pluto or another body uh, moves in front of it, we can learn a lot of things. We can learn if there's rings, for instance. Um, and we discovered recently that one of the dwarf planets in the outer solar system has rings. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, we can sometimes discover moons. Uh, we can discover if there's an atmosphere. One of the ways that we knew that uh, the Pluto had an atmosphere is that we saw that the light dimmed um, before it blinked out completely um, by the body of Pluto. Well, it turns out that last summer, um, they determined that there were three possibilities for occultations. Now, uh, we've only known about this object since 2014, so there was uncertainties in exactly where it was. Actually, there were uncertainties in where exactly where the star was. Uh, they actually used information from the European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft, which is right now mapping the positions of of over a billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And this gave them a lot more certainty about it, where the stars were, but still this little dim object out there at the outer parts of the solar system had some uncertainties. So uh, the first uh, occultation, uh, it turns out that they were off and they didn't see anything. The next one really happened over the Pacific Ocean and they were granted time with one of the unsung heroes of NASA's observatory fleet, Sophia. It's a, a 747 with a hatch in the back and a Hubble-sized telescope, infrared telescope that can um, they can open up this door at 40,000 feet, which I'm sure is was a scary thing the first time they did it. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's buckled in. At yeah, some oh, yeah. Level. <laughs> well, they're in a nice cabin, so the, the telescope is out, is, uh, out exposed to uh, the rarefied atmosphere. Um, anyway, they, um, they got time on that, and there's a great video at NASA and at the New Horizons website talking about that mission to catch it. They caught a glimpse of something, and we're, they're not really sure, but it, it, they were able to narrow down its position a little bit better with Sophia. The last one came, it was going to cut across uh, southern Patagonia, southern uh, Argentina, 
And to me, this is one of the great stories in We Are All Explorers. Um, Mark Bowie, who's a team member, uh, assembled a group of amateur astronomers and team members, and I mean, it was a big group, and um, they flew down to a city called Comodoro Rivadavia, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it's the largest city in, the, in southern Argentina. And uh, they practiced in the garage at the hotel, setting it up uh, in cold weather because uh, it was winter down there, uh, summer up here and winter down there. And basically their idea was to set up essentially a picket fence of telescopes to observe this star that MU69 was going to move in front of. And by having a picket fence, then you make sure that you get and hopefully get several uh, telescopes. They ended up getting five telescopes that um, uh, blocked out the light, and so they timed that very carefully. But the 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 story is really great. Uh, it turns out that the the people, uh, well, the space agency of of Argentina, Cone, and uh, the people of Patagonia, were very excited that there were astronomers from NASA in town. And um, they went all out. The mayor actually shut down one of the major highways outside of town so that the light, uh, the light from the trucks wouldn't disturb the astronomers while they were trying to make this measurement. Uh, there were a number of other things. Uh, if you listen, there's a, a podcast uh, on NASA. Jim Green, who's the head of uh, science uh, at NASA, is doing a podcast called... Uh, uh, Gravity Assist podcast, and his most recent one is an interview with Alan Stern, and he talks about some of the things that the people of Patagonia did to uh, to really make sure that this was a success. And it, when I heard this story, I was convinced: yes, we are all explorers. Ever, you no matter where you are, what nationality you are, or what your uh, governmental position or your work uh, position. People are interested in this, and and they're willing to help. And uh, so, New Horizons is turning out to be this international science expedition that is including the contributions of people from around the world, even though it's being run and managed by NASA. I think it's really great. We're talking with NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador Ron Hobbs. A little bit of what we discovered. So from the five occultations that we were able to observe, the evidence is that MU69 is it's either an oblong object or it is likely a binary, could could be a contact binary. In other words, the two the two pieces are in they're they're touching each other. Anybody who's followed the Rosetta mission to uh, Comet uh, 67P knows, because uh, that was discovered to be a binary uh, object that uh, came in from the Kuiper Belt uh, originally and uh, ended up orbiting closer to the sun. Um, there's actually a paper that I've seen that suggests that all the original planetesimals that formed our planets, the, in, in other words, the gas the uh, stellar gas and dust that uh, was the solar nebula that 
um, most of which became the sun, the rest became the planets and the dwarf planets and the asteroids and the comets, etc., etc. That one of the stages is that they form these small world called planetesimals. And the writers of this paper suggest that uh, most, if not all of them, were binary. What's exciting about MU69 is that it seems to be a classical object. It seems to be in an undisturbed part of the Kuiper belt. And so it's very possible, in fact, it's very likely at this point, that it is a primordial, one of these primordial planetesimals. And so, in some senses, the exploration of MU69 may be more important than the the uh, uh, exploration of Pluto, and that's saying a lot because that's terribly important, I think. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm very excited. So for for those who are listening, uh, just a reminder: the New Horizons probe is currently napping. Uh, one of the ways that they save money is that they put it to sleep when it's uh, cruising out there through the outer reaches of the solar system. It will wake up this summer and uh, we'll begin looking for it. And New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, depending on where you are on Earth, uh, is the scheduled time for the flyby. So, uh, and it's likely that it will probably be that week between Christmas and New Year's that we'll first get any decent pictures of it because it's so tiny. Uh, and, it, and New Horizons is traveling so fast. Um, yeah, don't blink. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we want to make sure that everything goes really well uh, in that flyby because uh, it, this will be the most distant world that NASA has yet discovered. And it may, given how long and how much money it takes to get out there, it may be a long time before that record is broken. Um, yeah, you know what amazes me? You know, the the whole thing is this amazing technological achievement. Mm -hmm. But I'm blown away just by the fact that people can say, we've got this little thing that's a gazillion miles away, and it's going to go in front of this star, <laughs> and you can go to Argentina to see it, and it works. Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> it is truly amazing, yeah. I, you know, um, I, I want to learn more about uh, this Gaia mission. The Gaia mission, as I mentioned, is really, uh, it's doing astrometry, uh, which is plotting the exact positions of the stars. And that's really how astronomy started. I mean, Hipparchus and Ptolemy were doing astrometry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much all you could do without telescopes. Um, and so, but there's there's uncertainty because of the turbulent atmosphere and, and uh, just the uh, uncertainties uh, in the quantum universe, we're continuing to refine those measurements that were first started 2,000 years ago by Greek astronomers. And this spacecraft called Gaia is making the best measurements of a billion stars, which I will remind you is probably one-tenth of one percent <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of all the stars in our uh, galaxy. But Hey, you know, we're a lot farther along than we were 10, 15, 60 years ago. Uh, just a reminder, uh, today is uh, February 2nd. Two days ago was the 60th anniversary of 
America's entry into the space age with the launch of uh, Explorer 1. There was no NASA back then. NASA was actually created uh, that year in 1958 um, because of the success of Explorer 1 and the dreams that people had of what America could do in space. I think they fulfilled very well on their original mission. So what's up next for New Horizons? Is there another thing further out oh, it can do? Or, uh... Well, that's a good question. No, we haven't discovered anything that we can get to with the fuel that, that that's left aboard New Horizons. Remember, you've got resources. It's not just money that we have to spend wisely. Uh, once you launch, you can only take a certain amount of fuel. Uh, and uh, basically to get there, to get to Pluto in the time that we did, nine and a half years, we had to build the smallest, lightest, most compact spacecraft we could with modern technology and get one of the most powerful rockets that NASA has uh, currently and launch it uh, and uh, Get it going. It was one of the fa it well. It was the fastest human-made object leaving Earth, ever. Um, made it past the moon in just nine hours, to give you an idea. And so, um, so we have a little bit of fuel. We haven't discovered anything else, although they're continuing to look. And uh, uh, Alan Stern did say on this podcast the other day that they're applying to Hubble for more time to look out there uh, to find. One of the missions that I'm excited about this year, TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, primarily, obviously, to look for planets around other stars. But it will also catch any occultations um, that are happening in our solar system. And so it may discover some new worlds out there, too. But I think uh, we're, we're going to have to use Hubble and... Hopefully, uh, James Webb will get out there pretty soon, and I'm, it's going to be very busy, but uh, it'd be really nice if it took a peek over there and to see if there's anything else, because it would be uh, interesting to see something farther out. There's plenty of energy, uh, and of course, it's headed out of the solar system, um, and so... I guess right now the only next stop would be the uh, boundary of the heliosphere. You know, the Voyagers right now are crossing that. Voyager 1 has already, we believe, crossed it. Voyager 2, any day now. They keep saying any day now. <laughs> it's kind of a, a nebulous definition of where that is, isn't it? Well... Uh, more nebulous than they thought. I mean, it, there is a clear boundary. The, uh, the, the heliosphere uh, comes about because the solar wind is going out from the sun, and eventually it runs up against the rarefied gas of interstellar space and forms this uh, shock wave. Um, the problem is, is we don't really know how it's shaped so in different directions, we don't know how far out it goes. Also, because of different activity of the sun, it can change size. And so, for instance, uh, Voyager 1 passed uh, one of the significant boundaries uh, multiple times because the boundary kept going out and coming back in and going back out. Um, furthermore, and this goes back to the point of why we explore, 
it turns out scientists expected that boundary to be very crisp and very uh, easily detected by the instruments that Voyager had on it. But it turns out that the interaction of the magnetic field of the sun and the magnetic field of the galaxy is more complicated than the scientists expected. Once Who again, <laughs> <laughs> nature's more creative. So yeah, it is uh, somewhat um, fuzzier, but uh, I, I think there's pretty good evidence that Voyager 1 is out. Um, Voyager 2 is going in a different direction, and so getting Voyager 2 out and getting and following New Horizons until it leaves the heliosphere will give us three data points on the size and shape. And uh, so this will be, this is very important work too. And so hopefully NASA will have um, the funds to be able to continue this mission uh, until it reaches the heliopause. It'd be great and easier if there was a sign out there that said, caution, you are leaving the solar system. <laughs> it would, but I don't think anybody's put that up. <laughs> Send back a photo like, welcome to Oregon, right? Yeah, it, you know, and it's a, for your listeners, um, I, I'll just make this other a comment. You know, there's a lot of talk about leaving the solar system, the boundary of the solar system. That's a, that is nefarious because what we're talking about is the boundary of the influence of the sun, which is a good marker and a clear one. But there are comets and stuff that are way outside the heliosphere. They're still gravel, gravitationally attached. Um, to uh, our sun. In fact, the Oort cloud may reach a third of the way to Alpha Centauri. It's a long way. And that's far, much farther than, uh, yeah, we're not going to have any probe that's going to listen unless um, Yuri Milner and uh, Stephen Hawking and the group that are working with Breakthrough Starshot manage to get these probes, uh, these nanoprobes, uh, out there traveling at 20% of the speed of light, uh, then we might we might get out to the, that edge of the unit, of the solar system. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the uh, Astronomy on Tap presentations in the last year or so touched on that. And the graduate student who uh, was making the presentation was all ready to say that it was a cockamamie idea, but then he said, you know, I thought if I was completely disagreeing with Stephen Hawking that maybe I ought to rethink my position. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, uh, yeah, I've had a, a, a similar thought, is uh, both thoughts, that, uh, that, that maybe uh, uh, Stephen Hawking has finally gone over the edge, <laughs> but uh, he's been uh, pretty successful so far, so maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it's wonderful. You know, I, I have similar thoughts about Elon Musk and his ideas of going to Mars. But, but I, I think it's wonderful that we have people who are able to dream and to articulate their dream and, to, and, and, and audacious dreams. And it was really John Kennedy with an audacious statement that I believe that this nation should commit itself, the important words, commit itself to landing men on the moon and returning them safely. <laughs> uh, I was reading about John Young, uh, yes, who yes. passed away uh, earlier, uh, about a month ago, um, and he said, 
I really like the idea of returning them safely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was that audacious dream that in some sense has set us on the path to New Horizons and the Webb Telescope and Hubble and, and all of the things that we could talk about uh, that NASA is doing and other space agencies are doing to explore. And it makes me hopeful <clears throat> to, to recognize that the effort has been pretty consistent. The, the, the notion of where we want to go keeps changing. Let's go to Mars. No, let's not. But there's, there seems to be this constant commitment to that exploration and to keep yeah. pushing out there. But, yeah, it, it, and basically I think you'd ask any scientist, uh, their answer would be, let's go everywhere. Let's do everything. <laughs> you know, that I mentioned the Pluto underground. What happened uh, is that after Viking and NASA kind of said, okay, well, we've explored Mars, and then they were uh, uh, busy with the shuttle, with Voyager, with um, uh, the, Hubble tel uh, uh, the Hubble telescope, and it's kind of like the people who were really interested in Mars said, wait a minute, there's a lot more to learn than the Vikings 1 and 2 could, uh, uh, could tell us, and so they formed a Mars underground in uh, uh, NASA to kind of f uh, foster planning for uh, additional missions to Mars. And so, you know, and that, that's a whole nother topic. What they, I mean, there are eight, I believe there are eight spacecraft on or around Mars right now. Um, and so I, I think that was helpful. And Alan Stern and his uh, friends saw what the Mars Underground was doing, and that's why they formed the Pluto Underground, <laughs> because they were. And obviously, I think that probably had a beneficial effect, because when NASA finally said, hey, we're, we were willing to entertain this as a proposal, they were ready to go. They had the proposals all written. Um, they knew what they were talking about. Um, and so, um, yeah, but let's go everywhere. We can't afford to go everywhere. So I think NASA's been very good, uh, the management of NASA. You remember that NASA as a whole, since the 70s, they've gotten about one half of 1% of the federal dollar. And so everything that you think of, the shuttle, Hubble, all these missions to the outer solar system, all these missions to Mars, um, really is a fraction of, of, of a percent of the federal budget. So um, the fact that they've been able to discover all these incredible things with efficient use of their resources, uh, I think uh, puts them in very good stead. They really are the world leaders in, uh, in this exploration. Although there's, there are people following them now. <laughs> yeah, all, all sorts of other countries and private companies, as you yes. mentioned, are all getting involved in yes. that. Yes. It's an exciting time. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like the revival of the space age. Um, I, I have heard it described as the second space age. Our guest has been NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador Ron Hobbs. That's it for this episode of the Seattle Astronomy Podcast. Keep up with day-to-day -day news on our blog, find astronomy events on our calendar, and view maps to recommended stargazing sites. It's all at seattleastronomy.com. 
Seattle Astronomy is supported by contributions through Patreon. We thank our supporters at the executive producer level or above, Cloudbreak Optics in Ballard, Washington. To become a patron, visit Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Seattle Astronomy. The Seattle Astronomy podcast is copyright 2018 by Seattle Astronomy. Our theme music is Aboard the Alien Craft from the album Symphony for Spaceman by Steve Combs and Delta Is. It's on freemusicarchive.org and is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. I'm Greg Scheiderer, wishing you clear skies. Thanks for listening.